I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. We've been fighting this pandemic for a year now, and there haven't been very many times when we could say that we had a good problem. But now we do. And it is a great problem, really. Canada's vaccine rollout supply no longer appears to be the main problem, at least for the foreseeable future. The federal government is saying that millions of doses will be coming into the country. Provinces are scrambling really to get infrastructure and systems in place to start inoculating the general public. This is a wonderful thing to contemplate. We initially thought it would take at least 12 to 18 months just to develop and test a vaccine. And 12 months later, we have hundreds of thousands of shots arriving every week, ready to go into arms. But whose arms? When the Ontario government rolled out its vaccine timetable last week, the criticism that it faced was mostly around how long it was planning to take, not if it was the right call to assign priority based, mostly, on age. This virus predominantly kills older people, so yeah, it seems sensible to do it that way. But what if there was a better way? A way that prioritized not just by age, but also assigned vaccines in a manner that would curb the spread of the disease and target the people at risk of the worst outcomes. And if that way exists, how can governments adopt it and roll it out without risking a whole lot of backlash from people who feel they've now been bumped back even further? It is a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Peter Uni sits on the COVID-19 science advisory table, and he co-authored a new report that suggests that better way I mentioned. Hello, Peter. Hi. Why don't you start, uh, for those of us who aren't familiar with it, by explaining what is the COVID-19 science advisory table? Who's on it? What role does it play? The Science Advisory Table is a group of uh, scientists and uh, senior um, health systems decision makers that advise the, the, uh, the province, the Ministry of Health uh, and uh, elected decision makers. We're about 45 people meanwhile, but we also have several subgroups. Uh, for instance, a, a subgroup on, a, on a congregate settings, on behavioral sciences, etc. We meet uh, twice a week, typically, uh, so we spend uh, the best part of um, three hours together every week, which helps us also, you know, to keep, to uh, develop a continued common sense of reality. 
and uh, we meet once a week with the health coordination table and have you know multiple meetings or more on an ad hoc basis with uh, various representatives of the different ministries uh, public health ontario um and uh, and other uh, stakeholder groups can you outline uh, before we get into this new report how Ontario is currently approaching vaccine distribution. And and did you guys advise the government uh, on their initial plan? We didn't uh, initially advise on the uh, vaccination rollout, but got relatively uh, strongly involved when um, discussing the uh, importance of speed in vaccination of um, long-term care home residents and staff. Uh, which then also got incorporated in the strategy of the province. The current um, rollout strategy is uh, focusing on different vulnerable groups, as I implied already. One of them, of course, the most important one is long-term care home residents. We had um, roughly 50% of the deaths, uh, COVID-19 deaths in the province in long-term care home residents. And uh, glad to report back that uh, this really went extremely well and that we really now see the impact of um, COVID-19 vaccines in this very vulnerable group. The uh, challenges we had, which were big challenges in the province, actually have near completely been eliminated. There are then other groups that are uh, important, including uh, frontline healthcare workers. Again, this is important because they can get continuously exposed, but also because you need to make sure that the um, healthcare workers are actually able to work, obviously, and are not part you know, of an outbreak that could uh, uh, result in a prolonged isolation and quarantine and then just uh, in a decrease in the workforce that we currently urgently need. And the, uh, the current uh, strategy also focuses on those who are aged 80 and above. And again, this makes perfect sense because uh, that's the people who were most likely to die, except for people in uh, long-term care homes, irrespective of their age. So this all makes perfect sense where we are right now. And that's where we're coming in, actually, with this new report. So everything that we're doing already makes sense. But is it necessarily the optimal way? And this is what your new report gets into, right? This is correct, yes. So... What we're now just uh, trying to address is the fact that, that this pandemic all over the world is socioeconomically driven, very clearly. Life is unfair, and uh, this also holds for uh, the impact of this pandemic. Those people who are most vulnerable, who live in precarious living situations, get the jobs done on behalf of all of us, you know, make sure that we actually ha are able to buy, uh, you know, food uh, on the shelves in the supermarkets. That's those people who were most heavily burdened by this pandemic. And what we know is that the um, pandemic is heavily concentrated in terms of its burden on 10 to 20 percent of the neighborhoods in the province. And uh, this has been historically the case, and as is the case most of the time in life, you know, the past is the best predictor of the future, even if we would not like this to be the case. 
And what we know is also, you know, for uh, in, in terms of short-term or mid-term predictions that this continues to be the case, those um, neighborhoods that were most heavily burdened in the past, they haven't reached um, herd immunity yet. They're not... Uh, sufficiently protected against against infections uh, and they will continue to have really high numbers of cases of hospitalizations of ICU admissions and deaths if you're not being careful and just look into how to protect these uh, neighborhoods best and that's where this report comes in we try to describe the magnitude of the problem and try to outline a solution that actually looks into two different dimensions here one continues to be age really important but the second dimension and we basically then just cross tap these two dimensions against each other is a neighborhood of residence i'd like you to get a little bit deeper on the magnitude of the problem because it makes a lot of sense to me that uh, higher risk neighborhoods with precarious living situations would have a higher number of cases. Um, but you also found significantly worse outcomes among even younger people in those neighborhoods, right? Yeah, this is actually quite crazy. I mean, we can we can start first perhaps with uh, deaths from COVID-19. Um, as of January 16th uh, of this year, 50% of deaths outside of long-term care and retirement homes have just occurred in 4% of the population aged 16 years or above in the province. And these parts of the population are defined by older age, 65 or, uh, 65 or 70, and high-risk neighborhoods. So if you are uh, 70 or so and live in a high-risk neighborhood that had historically a high case burden, then your risk of dying is considerably higher than uh, if you live uh, anywhere else in the province and or young and or are younger. And uh, that's certainly that's one of the issues. And then when you actually go further than that and not only look into the risk of death, but also into the risk of being hospitalized or dying, then what you see is that in those 10% of neighborhoods that were most heavily burdened um, by uh, COVID-19, um, a person who is aged 45 to 49 year old and uh, lives in, this, uh, in, in such a high-risk neighborhood has a higher risk of being admitted to the hospital or dying than an 80-plus-year-old in one of the best neighborhoods in Ontario. Best in terms of, you know, the lowest risk of COVID-19. And this is a striking difference. You can also see, you know, when you then look at that, that a person who is... Um, 80 years or more in one of the highest risk neighborhoods has a roughly 380 fold higher risk of being admitted to the hospital or dying as compared with a 16 to 39 year old in the best neighborhood. So when you look at all these numbers, then, you know, the differences we have are dramatic. And this is a curse if it comes to the pandemic. But it is also an opportunity to do the right thing now and to focus on those who need vaccines most at the very beginning. Not to ask uh, a stupid question, but it is my job. Why are those numbers so massively different? Historically, we have struggled a lot, really a lot, especially in, in neighborhoods that had a high 
uh, extent of racial diversity, ethnic diversity, a high number of people working in essential jobs outside of healthcare or outside of hospital healthcare, I have to say, and uh, a high number of people who lived in precarious living situations, you know, meaning six people in a two-bedroom flat, etc. So that's the people who need to go out there to get food on the table for their kids. That's the people who can't isolate at home because they, they don't have the situation that I have here with four people in a five-bedroom uh, house, for instance. And that's those people who then have a dramatically increased risk of, of actually uh, contracting the disease. But it continues. A lot of these people also have a pronounced uh, risk factor profile in terms of, you know, cardiovascular risk factor, you know, that make them more prone also to experience complications of, uh, of COVID-19. We know that relatively well. So if you would look at um, a map that shows you risk factor profiles, for diabetes, for heart disease, etc., and would superimpose a map that shows you the risk of um, COVID-19 hospitalizations or deaths, a lot of, of the colors on these maps and the shape of the map would be superimposed. So how can we adjust our strategy uh, to address this high death rate without sacrificing the work that we're doing now uh, with older people? Because to your point, that is the most at-risk group. So the first thing is we shouldn't stop vaccinating as much as we can those people who are um, still living in congregate settings first. That's the most important part. No? And then we continue with uh, vaccinating those who are aged 80 or above. And they, they will then in the next step actually just go down stepwisely with the age, you know, have the next age cut off at 75 or at 70. But that's the moment when then at the same time, simultaneously, the second dimension will kick in where um, then the uh, vaccine rollout most likely will then have a lower cutoff on age in those neighborhoods that are most affected by uh, the pandemic. And of course, they will also need to make sure to work with uh, community health centers, community organizations, community leaders, that we really are able not only to offer the vaccine, but to actually really get the vaccine to those people who need it most. Meaning the vaccine centers need to be really in the communities that uh, needs the vaccines most. We need to make sure that we have a variety of options, you know, to register or just to walk in to get vaccinated, etc. That the thresholds are really low, that we also don't have barriers, you know, if you if you have disabilities, etc. That you're able just to get the vaccine if you need it. And what is really important, you know, with the approach is the approach stays simple. Show me your driving license and I tell you right now whether you actually get vaccinated based uh, or can get vaccinated based on your age and based on your uh, place of residence. That's all what is needed. It's very simple. This is a bit of a delicate question, but how do you message that change in strategy without getting a lot of blowback from people in more privileged neighborhoods who might be, say, 60 or 65 and are seeing the lower age cutoff in the at-risk neighborhoods and feel like they're being pushed back in line because I know this province, I know <laughs> that that kind of stuff is going to happen. 
you know, it's it's important to understand that if we focus not only on age, but also on those who, who actually have carried the highest burden during this pandemic, this will benefit everybody. That's the most important thing to message here to everybody. Um, we know that it was much harder to get the uh, pandemic under control in those neighborhoods that have struggled all the time. So also when you go into lockdown, what you see is that the lockdown works much better in a neighborhood such as the one I'm living in here at Moore Park in Toronto, as compared with a neighborhood that had a really historically high risk of COVID-19. You apply the same lockdown and it takes much longer for these neighborhoods that had a high burden actually even to react to the lockdown. So for a person who now lives in a neighborhood like mine and is perhaps 65 or 70, I would say it's not only that you do the right thing from an ethical perspective, if you now just say, okay, I'm not next in line. It's really not needed. I can continue to do, uh, you know, to live in my uh, social bubble and this is all okay. And I'm, you know, really grateful that I'm actually in such a privileged situation and that I live in a neighborhood that had a relatively low burden. But this continues. The point is then also that if this person actually agrees on, you know, using this approach, it will also benefit this person much more because this means that our lockdowns and our restrictions will be much more efficient in the future because we start to protect those who are most heavily burdened by this disease early on. And this means our lockdowns and restrictions will be much more efficient, short, crisp, efficient, because we protect those who need it most. How prepared are we to adjust this rollout plan on the fly? And how prepared are we for, uh, thankfully, the sheer number of vaccines that are about to show up? I think that Ontario has an excellent track record in mass vaccination. And we just need to leverage the existing infrastructure in addition to the new infrastructures. The change in strategy is actually very doable. Um, you know, when we approached that, when we started that, I thought about this, that, you know, thought thought about the, uh, the task force, you know, and the task force being headed by a general, a general needs a map. What I can give him, you know, through these uh, stats that we're doing and with a geographic information system is exactly that, a map. I can show the task force on the map where to go first and we can provide the numbers that allow you to make a fair decision based just on neighborhoods, just your first three digits of the postal code, where to go first and, you know, what kind of age cutoffs to use to have a fair assignment of vaccines. And it's based on our ability to predict what will happen next. So we protect those that have the highest risk of developing complications in the future. And that's the fairest way of dealing with that for everybody. Will the number of vaccines uh, that are about to arrive, you know, I'm tempted to knock on wood when I say it, but it looks pretty certain that we're about to get hundreds of thousands and then millions of doses. Are we prepared to get those doses to where they're needed. You know, you mentioned it uh, very briefly earlier about how these sites for vaccinations need to be close to the people who need them. And getting infrastructure into uh, more at-risk neighborhoods is not something we have traditionally excelled at. 
Well, we always can get better. And I, I don't think that we were that bad at it. So remember also we have flexibility or even just with uh, the the current mRNA vaccines, we have quite a bit of flexibility with the cool chain, etc. So we can really go into these neighborhoods. We need to use the community organizations. And I see a lot of initiatives actually happening. And we just need to continue doing that. You know, we can be relatively nimble and fast. Don't overthink it. Just go where it's most needed. Work with the community organizations. Make sure that you have everybody aboard, that you tailor your communication to the needs locally, that you tailor your approach to the needs. You can't have a one size fits all. And then just look at it, you know, in a half, uh, sorry, in a, in a glass half full kind of way. We did it before. It doesn't have to be perfect, but we can be as smart as we can with the limited amount of vaccines. We're not in the privileged situation of, uh, of Israel, you know, that they basically are able to just mass vaccinate nearly the entire population. By the way, they also struggle in some pockets. So what we do, we can't do it with mass. So we need to be street smart. And that's a way to be street smart. We just use two dimensions. One is neighborhood and the other is age. And we do the best we can to get those who need it most vaccinated first. And as long as a society and also, you know, as those people are involved in, you know, thinking ahead of how we can do that, have a common understanding that we focus on this and then consider this approach as one of the layers. It's not the only one. It's just one of the layers to prioritize uh, mass vaccination strategies, then I think things could really work well and go into the right direction. This really means that if we have perhaps doses for 1.5 to 2 million people in the province, we actually can get this pandemic really relatively swiftly under control during the next few months. We don't need to achieve, you know, um, everything at the same time. And the point is just that we are aware of a strategy that will prioritize those who have the worst cards during this pandemic is always better, gives you also most bang for the buck than a strategy that basically ignores these issues. And by the way, there's another point which is important. What we know from many jurisdictions, including the US, is if we do not have a regulatory mechanism that allows you to focus on those with the highest burden at the beginning, what happens typically is that people like you and me, who were a bit more lucky and are not essential non-healthcare workers typically, have a bit of a better education, live in a bit better neighborhood, that's the people who get the vaccines first. That's not what we want. We want exactly the opposite. So if you have a, reg a regulatory mechanism that actually focuses on getting the vaccines where they're needed, we counteract this unfortunate bias that happens all over the world. Last question. What have you heard so far um, from the province about this report? Are they open to it? Are they reconsidering their strategy? Yeah, we were um, briefing actually probably nearly all of the stakeholders. I had a minister's briefing, I had a briefing with the task force, we had the medical officers of health, and the feedback was always extremely positive. So I'm really quite positive that this uh, is currently influencing the thinking of how to, you know, take the next steps for the mass vaccination program. Dr. Yuni, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks a lot for having me. 
Dr. Peter Uni, who sits on the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you didn't hear it off the top, remember to take our listener survey. You can find it at the website. You can even win a tote bag. You can also talk to us anytime on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And you can listen to us, all of our episodes, either on our website or in your favorite podcast player. If you do find yourself in a player, check to see if you can rate us and review us. And if you can, you better do it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.